0: Way to this. Let me show you a better way.
1: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times. The things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the thirteenth, 2017. This is episode 1930 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. It's Friday, 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 and it's a special Friday. Yes, it's an unusual Friday. It is. Well, it is this kind of Friday. Yes, yes, that's right. It is Friday the thirteenth. Jason Voorhees is out. Look, no, it's that's a movie. Remember the? Mo- How many of those did they make? I was a, I was a 70s and 80s child. I remember the first one and all of us watched it we weren't supposed to when it finally came on TV and all but uh man it seems like they made like a cabillion of those and they just got dumber and worse and worse like I think by the time they were making the latest ones it was almost as bad as like Sharknado or something like that. Anyway, it is Friday. You know what that means? It is time for the Listener Council show. The Monster Show of the Week, and that was not an intended pun. I've been calling that for a long time. What do we got today? We have Stephen Harris talking about storing gas outdoors and hiding it from thieves. Choosing a hand-cranked meat grinder with Chef Keith Snow. How, eating a home with Russian olive and a rocket stove. That actually came in for, uh, I think it was actually the question went to Ben Falk, but uh, I redirected it to the Duke of Permaculture Paul Wheaton. That's almost a mini podcast in itself. He went long, but when you hear his guest, you'll understand why, and it's a damn good answer. Uh, Next up, to invest in retirement or to prep? Question angled at John Pugliano, and then dealing with hydrophobic soils. Jeff Lawton, hydrophobic means scared of water, but that's not really what the soil's not afraid of. It just won't absorb any water, and that does happen, and what do you do when that happens? Jeff Lawton will talk to us about that today. And you know, it's, it's, it's that time of year where we are in the depths of winter, but we're looking towards spring. And if you are in many climates, the time to be starting seeds is like in the next few weeks. So we have a question for Nick Ferguson on starting seeds indoors and end up with nice stocky seedlings rather than long, leggy, sad seedlings that don't do really well. We have the truth about. The concept of pre-sterilizing canning jars from Erica Strauss. And I'm going to finish up with a little segment on building a house all by watching YouTube. Yep, a pretty interesting story I wanted to leave you with on a Friday because it's inspirational and it's also very forward-looking in my opinion. Before we get into all that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons, but there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do and check out westernbotanicals.com. Guys, you know, prepping involves evaluating your primary survival needs of food, water, shelter, security, and energy, and then shoring them up. That's really the most simple way to understand it in a nutshell. In that effort, ready-made resources is the go-to place to get that done. Everything, and I do mean everything for your prepping needs. Ready made, ready to go at com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1930, and there's all kinds of wailing and gnashing and teeth going on in the TSP Wiki for this year from Alex Shrugged. Remember, if you go to tspwiki.com, you too can learn all kinds of really great stuff from the Survival, Self-Sufficiency, and History Wiki. There's everything you could ever want there, and you can contribute. There's even videos to show you how if you don't know how. Check it out sometime, tspwiki.com. Anyway, we have Herbert Hoover's day off. We have the Australians discover the Australians. We have notable births. Neil Armstrong, first man to walk on the moon, is born this year. Buzz Aldrin, second man to walk on the moon, and another person from our directory now that's still alive. Ross Perot, also still living, businessman and reform party presidential candidate. Pat Robertson, also still alive, chairman of the Christian Broadcasting Network and Republican Presidential Hopeful. In entertainment, Ray Charles. He will be called more important than Elvis Presley by Billy Joel. Clint Eastwood, alive. The Man with No Name, Spaghetti Western, Darity Harry movies and known for his no-nonsense political views. Gene Hackman, also still alive, actor in Superman, Enemy of the State, and a predictable but inspiring movie, Hoosiers. And Shel Silverstein, author of Where the Sidewalk Ends, A Light in the Attic, and A Boy Named Sue, which will become Johnny Cash's biggest hit. And uh, in other news, Congress creates the Veterans Administration this year, 1930. The word te- technocracy is uh, comes into use, or domination of technology, as we thought that was a new thing. Pluto is discovered this year. That would be the planet, not the dog. That's Mickey Mouse's friend. The Schmidt Wide Field Telescope was invented. It is preferred for its quality picture taking. What else comes around this year? How about neoprene? It stinks, but they'll work that out. Photo flash bulbs. Does anybody remember these? I do. I remember when you used to buy film for your camera and flash bolts. And some of the cameras we had had like a bar. with had like five flashes on one side, and you flipped the bar around had five flashes. It was either four or five. And the ones that we had most were like a cube. It's just it's four flash. You took a picture, and it flipped the cube around. And it took another one and flipped it around, and you got four out of the cube, and you had to throw it away. I remember those because I'm freaking old, I guess. Uh, Scotch tape is invented this year, not quite as like the modern, but one. But it starts here. Bird's eye frozen foods first marketing test this year, and Twinkies, the cake filling machine, now can be used when strawberries are out of season. And Peter Griffith and uh, Family Guy will have a place to venture to after the apocalypse because the pink, the Twinkies will even survive the apocalypse. I threw that flat, uh, pop culture reference in there myself. For the segment today, let's take a look at Herbert Hoover's day off. The U.S. economy has taken a nosedive. 600 banks have closed. Millions upon millions of dollars have been lost. And just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, Congress has a bright idea. I'm going to pause right there for my own commentary. Whenever Congress has an idea, it's always bad. I'm just saying. In their wisdom, okay, they have determined that cheap import goods are driving down the price of domestic goods. Actually, it is more efficient manufacturing methods that are driving down prices, and deflation means that our dollar can buy more. The farmers have been begging for subsidies, while while car manufacturers have lobbied for tariff protections. Do you think any of this is new? Guys, it's not new. In fact, so many lobbyists have just dropped by that congressmen can grant them only two minutes each, maybe three. Nothing in writing, though. The Smoot-Hawley Act is going to raise tariffs in ways Congress cannot possibly be aware of, probably because they didn't write the bill, just like today. The lobbyists write the bill, they give it to yeah, that's what they do. Anyway, the bill is too complex, and basket provisions hide tens of thousands of subsidies. Over a thousand economists collectively condemn the bill. The high tariffs will be considered a declaration of war against our foreign competitors, and war debts owed by America will become impossible to repay, if those foreign countries are cut off from the more lucrative, most lucrative market in the world. But their pleas fall on deaf ears. President Hoover signs the bill into law. America has taken an economic hit to the jaw, and the government has decided to lean into it. My take by Alex Shrugged. Inflation was intolerable. So I paid careful attention. When President Nixon asked the American people to have one meatless day per week, we all laughed. How about one meat day? We were eating imitation this and imitation that. And by the way, it does not taste just like butter. One of Nixon's speechwriters was also an economist named Ben Stein. He warned Nixon that a wage and price freeze would totally hose the economy. But it was an election year. Wage and price controls were believed to help the employer protect jobs and keep food prices low. But the price controls did not apply to new products and new foods. Suddenly everything was new. Prices skyrocketed, but wages remained frozen. Years later, when Ben Stein was building a movie career, he played a school teacher in the movie, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He had, he was famous for the line of, Bueller, Bueller. The director asked him to improvise his class lesson. He began teaching how America shot itself in the foot with the Smoot-Hawley Act. Eyes glazed over, the students laid their heads down in a pool of their own drool. It was hilarious, and every word was true. And we just don't learn. We just don't learn. What it, th- there's a lot of the things that that President Trump, I'm just going to start calling him that because you know, we're what uh, seven days from instead of president like new President Trump, new President Trump. Okay, we'll call him that is uh, going to uh, talk has talked about doing anyway that are a lot like this. Maybe not quite as ridiculous, but you know for it to happen, you got to get a bill, and the bills usually come from lobbyists who always look out for their clients, right? That's what they do. Um, but a, a trade war with China is probably not a good idea. It's probably not a good idea right now. Uh, can we do things to to uh, maybe check the imbalance a little bit? Maybe, maybe. But I, I see. Here's what I always think about this: markets are going to market, and. We hear all this crap about, well, you know, can't we make anything in China? I and mean, this plastic thing here or that plastic thing there, why why, why can't we make it in America? You know, why does it got to be made in China? And my question to people that say that is always, do you want a job making that? Do you want a job doing that? And very seldom is that person... They always think there's somebody out there that does. Um, and and yeah, maybe if we got rid of all our welfare and stuff, like you'd rather have a job in a factory making plastic crap than not have anything to eat, I guess. But in the end... We're, we're doing what we want to do in America, not what we're told to do in America in general when it comes to, um, our lives. There is still enough freedom left that that is a generally true statement. Uh, even if you take a job you don't really want, it's not because somebody made you take it unless you're a kid and your dad made you do it so you could have a car or something like that. Talking to a grown adult, you know, you have choices and, and, and maybe someday you won't have quite as many. I mean, that, that's something else to look at. A lot of this stuff is going to take care of itself with automation anyway. And we need to start thinking differently economically, but I'll I'll save that for my closing segment today. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, the first question we have for expert council members here. This question goes out to Stephen Harris, and it is, again, on uh, storing gasoline outside because the guy lives in a townhouse. So doesn't have a shed or a garage, and he also has kind of a nervous-nilly roommate. Steve, take it away.
2: Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question. I got one here from Brad. It's a short one. It says, Hey, Jack and Steve, what's your advice on how to safely store reserved gasoline when a person doesn't have access to either a shed or a garage? Currently, I live in a townhouse and only have a small backyard, approximately 12 foot by 10 foot. I do not have a garage or a shed in the backyard. My roommate is hesitant about me storing several extra cans of gas in the backyard due to the potential fire risk. Also, assuming it's safe to store some gas cans in the backyard, what are your suggestions for hiding them in plain view? Where I live, right now there's a potential risk some from some bothersome old blue hairs, meaning old ladies. First of all... um your roommate scared about the potential fire risk of a gas can in the backyard, you do not let the irrational fears of other people stop you from doing anything that you want to do in your life, because if you stop what you're doing in your life for the irrational, unreal fears of other people, you will never ever get a darn thing accomplished. Saying that you know, I'm scared the gas cans are going to burst into flame is like saying, I don't want to have a firearm in my house for I'm afraid that it might shoot someone. The gun is not going to just magically shoot someone. The gas cans in the backyard are just not going to magically explode in the flames. If there's no source of ignition, no leak, well, no source of ignition, even if there was a leak, nothing's going to happen. You can take a plastic can of gas and you can leave it outside forever if it's tightly sealed up. Nothing's going to happen to it. It's not going to explode. It's not going to catch on fire. Now, What I would suggest over a red can of gas is I would suggest the 15-gallon plastic drums that you can get off of Craigslist. Or if you search for barrels and drums in the Yellow Pages, you can find a place that sells used barrels and drums. And you can get some that had pineapple juice or Coke syrup in them. And they clean them out really, really good. And they sell a 15-gallon drum far between 15 and 30 dollars this you know they're going to be white or they're going to be blue and these don't look like fuel containers they have no you know they don't scream i have gasoline in them and the best thing you can leave these things out forever in the summertime they'll puff out so what let them puff out they're not going to break in the winter time, they're going to collapse down a little bit because it's cold. So what? Big deal. They can do this a million times and never get fatigued. Don't worry about it. Just get a good bung wrench, and I got one on solar1234.com from Amazon, and you just tighten down those bungs as hard as you can, but not so hard that the gaskets pop out. And then what you can do is you can get two of these and you can put some boards over it. And you can then have like a little workbench in your backyard. Two barrels and some boards makes a workbench. It doesn't look like you're storing gasoline. No. But they'll weigh about a 100 pounds fully loaded with gasoline. And that, you know, it's good enough for you to grunt and move them out to your vehicle. And use the siphon that I tell you how to make the siphon on fuel and fuel storage. Uh, fuel and fuel storage is the class. It's at Stephen1234.com. I tell you how to make the world's best siphon that will last for decades. You can siphon the fuel out of the drum and into your car. That's really, really what I would suggest about for storing fuel outside in the long term. I have friends of mine in Tucson, Arizona who have 6 15 gallon drums of gasoline out behind their garage and they go through the summer. They go through 110 degrees heat plus sunshine and nothing has happened to them since 2003. They're just fine. Make sure you add uh PRI-G for P- for gasoline or PRI-D for diesel to it, and make sure you add it to it every year to keep the gasoline from going bad. Uh, PRI-D and G are at solar1234.com. You can easily find them and get them from Amazon. And uh, they are much better than the stable brand of stuff. And also, do not worry about storing gasoline with ethanol. Stop The damn witch hunt on ethanol. An internal combustion engine is like a cannon that doesn't throw its piston away every half cycle. As long as you're spraying in a fuel and air mixture in there that's explosive, it doesn't care if it's ethanol, gasoline, mixture thereof, mouse farts, whatever. If you mix it in there and it'll explode, it will work. So... Don't worry at all about if my gasoline has ethanol in it. You know, it's, it's a witch hunt. You know, in the 1600s, my sick, my kid got sick, the cow died, the witch must have done it. My chainsaw won't start, my lawn tractor doesn't run right, it must be the ethanol. It's a witch hunt. So, just stop it, it's fine, it works great. Long story short, anyways. That is what I would recommend for hiding in plain sight. Uh, The other thing I would do is I would go onto Facebook, onto the Survival Podcast Forum, and I would ask my question on there and say, what are some creative things you would do for hiding 15 gallon or 5 gallon barrels of drum, of gasoline in plain sight and backyard? Some people will probably suggest you build a planter around like a 5 gallon can and and, uh, make a wood box around it and put a planter on top of it with some plants on it. That's another good thing. Um, just all sorts of different things you can do. You can wrap it up in a black plastic uh, trash bag so people can't see it. that's a 5-gallon gas can. Get creative, and I'm sure there's a bunch of things that you can do. But if I were you, I'd have 10 gallons of fuel on hand, Definitely. Even if I lived in a townhouse for my vehicle, that way if you're out of fuel, you can put fuel in it. You can still get to work or you can get out of the area. You can evacuate. Uh, also, you can use your car to power your house. How to power your house from your car. One of my best classes ever with Jack at Stephen1234.com. As always, I have a great inventory of free stuff, free classes, stuff for all of you new people who have just joined. It's at stephen1234.com. You will absolutely love it. Go there and read the testimonials of what people have to say. You won't believe it. It's really awesome stuff. Just like Jack, I am dedicated to helping you with your preparedness and protecting you. It's a lifelong cause. I believe in it. I do it. And thank you very much for listening to me here on the Survival Podcast. Please email in some more expert questions. For me, and I'll be happy to get them on the air and answered. Sometimes they're so simple, I just drop you an email back and tell you the answer, and it doesn't even go on the air. I'm always happy to get your questions. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later.
0: We have found the witch. May we burn her? who you know she is a witch? She looks like yeah, she looks yeah, a witch, yeah, a witch. Bring her forward. Not a witch. I'm
3: not a witch. But you are dressed as one. They dressed me up like this. <laughs> and this isn't
4: my nose. It's a false one.
0: Well? Well, we did do the nose. The nose? And the hat. But she is a witch. Yes. Did you dress her up like this? No! 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 no. Yes yes, 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 yes. A, bit, yeah. a, a bit. bit, a bit, a bit. She has got a wart. <laughs> what makes you think she is a witch?
3: Well, she turned me into a newt. A newt. We got better.
0: What? Burn Burn. Burn! 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 What? There are ways of. Telling whether she is a witch. Oh, they tell us. Tell me, what do you do with witches? Burn! And what do you burn apart from witches? All witches! Wood. So, why do witches burn? Because they're made of wood. Good. Oh yeah. <laughs> So... How do we tell whether she is made of wood? Build a bridge out of her. Ah, but can you not also make bridges out of stone? Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah, true. Cool. Uh... Uh, does a wood sink in water? No, no. No, it floats! It floats! Throw her into the bowl!
3: <laughs> what also floats in water? Bread! Apples!
0: Uh, very small rocks! Cider! A great gravy. Cherries. Mud. A churches. Churches. Lead. Lead. A duck. Ooh. Exactly. So logically, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood. And therefore, a witch! A witch! A witch. A witch. A witch.
1: What can I say? It's Friday. I'm bringing extra production value to the show. She's a witch, brother, right? Um, man, if you if you're a male and you grew up in the '70s and '80s, I, I I bet you could recite almost every line of that. Anyway, um, next question I have, totally unrelated to witches, uh, grinding meat instead of grinding. Well, I have Newton wing of bat. We're gonna grind meat. And uh, the guy wrote in, he doesn't want an electric grinder. I, I say walk in electric grinder. It's so much easier. But uh, if you do want a hand crank grinder, and I do have one, what do you do? Well, I'm turning this one over to Chef Keith Snow. Chef, what do we do for the hand cranked meat grinder?
5: Hey, Aaron, it's Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. com. want to weigh in on your question about meat grinders. Um, so some of the issues here, the first one you're, wondering about is either cast iron or stainless steel. Both work. Um, cast iron is going to be more durable and the chances are that if you buy a cast iron, you're going to get it from a U.S. source. A lot of this, a lot of the machines that you see that are stainless steel are imported and just because it's stainless steel doesn't mean, mean that it was made with good stainless steel or properly. A lot of these imported, um, tools like this are pieces of crap most of them come from China. I don't trust the coatings, um, and I've even seen uh, aluminum that's polished being passed off as stainless steel. So you really need to be careful when you're buying imported. I would just avoid it altogether and buy American. So I would probably look for one of these cast iron machines. Can you buy it on the used market? Yes, you can. Um, There can be a problem securing parts with some models. Now, if you happen to find one called Enterprise, um, that company has changed names. It's now called Choprite, C-H-O-P-R-I-T-E, Choprite. They're based out of Harleysville, Pennsylvania. Now, Aaron, I just got off the phone with um, one of the people at Choprite. I wanted to speak with them and, and get ask a bunch of questions and make sure that I recommend something that's going to be good for you. So they were really helpful on the phone. Now, one thing that's good about their newer models is they have a baked-on finish and it's a food-grade kind of a non-stick or slippery finish that's baked onto the cast iron. Now, this is really critical because this is going to help prevent rust, and that's the real problem with cast iron is not only rust, but also leaching because they they will uh, do some leaching. So this thing has a coating on it. And, uh, they still make it in Pennsylvania. The best place to buy it is lehmans.com, L-E-H-M-A-N-S. Laymans.com. I'll have Jack put a link to the page where you can find your model 22 on laymans.com. It's $249 and it is in stock at this point. Laymans is a great company. If you happen to be in Kidron, Ohio, that's out in the Amish country. Um, it's really a great store. I mean, it's, it's definitely. Even if you had to drive an hour to get to the store, it is an amazing place to visit. I get their catalog, and I've bought a lot of things from them, so I can recommend Lehman's um, highly. Also, this machine being made in the U.S., this company's been in business a long time. This thing is very heavy duty. The only thing that I would suggest you be careful with, this is a bolt-down model. When you get into these bigger ones, they're bolt-down. So you need to have a place to bolt it down. Um, where you can also clean it. Now, you can definitely just take off the parts that need to be, you know, like the, the, um, screw on end part, the auger, the, the cutting disc, and the, um, you know, the die, which has the holes in it. Those parts can be taken off and washed. And if this thing is permanently bolted somewhere, as long as you take hot soapy water and a good sponge and really get after it, you can clean it. Now, that's going to be a bit of a pain in the neck. I would definitely, um, consider mounting this to some type of a cutting board maybe a good lexan cutting board and you could mount it from the bottom so the screws came through the bottom of the cutting board and they were inset into the cutting board they would go through the four corners of your grinder and then you could use wing nuts to secure it and then maybe you could clamp that whole thing to the end of your counter with some good heavy duty clamps because these need to be secure because when you're grinding meat they're going to want to run around on you Uh, But as long as you can figure that out, and obviously uh, plenty of people have because the bolt-down unit is rather popular, you'd be good to go. And then maintaining these things, you definitely want to be very careful to, obviously we're dealing with raw meat here, you want to make sure the thing is washed with a lot of hot soapy water, even a little cap full of bleach can't hurt here. Make sure it's good and sanitary. Now, the... Um, Parts of this grinder that could rust are the threads and the end cap and, of course, the cutting tools. So what you want to do, and this thing can be put in the dishwasher, so you can put the grinder unit itself into the dishwasher, and I wouldn't probably do that myself. I would just wash it in a a bucket in the sink with hot, soapy water. But you have to make sure that all those threads and anywhere that could rust is carefully dried. You don't want to just let it sit there with water pooled in it. So you want to be very careful. To make sure it's dry, what I would do is take a couple of paper towels or a good clean um, cloth and make sure that any of the threads that that have some um, exposed cast iron to make sure that those are dry. Once you have that done, then... Um, you want to be real careful. Run some bread through the machine after you're done grinding meat to force as much meat through those cutting dies as possible. Then you have to just get in there and really scrub those parts, and those are going to be steel. Those absolutely have to be dry before you put them away. What I do is I have a little scrubber, um, and I'll scrub off my cutting die and uh, you know the little knife part really well with hot soapy water with a touch of bleach. And then I have um, little miniature kind of scrubbers that can get in and out of those, the holes that are in the dye, So I make sure all the meat and any kind of sinew, any of that is taken out. Once it's completely washed and rinsed, I'll throw those things um, on a sheet pan and maybe pop them in a hot oven for five minutes, or I'll just, you know, take my tongs, hold them and just turn on the gas burner on my stove and just twist it around, making sure it's completely dry. Once it's cooled, I keep it in a zip bag with mineral oil. Now, the mineral oil, and just massage it around. Make sure all the um, parts of that steel are coated in oil, and that's going to keep them from rusting because this raw exposed steel, man, any of you that work with metal, you know this stuff wants to rust in seconds, and you don't want it to rust on you. So that's how you maintain those, but this Choprite Model 22 is a really good unit. And after speaking with the the uh, company officials, they definitely stand behind the product. They're making parts for it. It's a going concern, and hey, it's made in the United States, and that is a good thing. You definitely want to avoid. Um, and there's a lot of these uh, grinder superstores on the internet. Every single, not every, but most of the ones they're selling are imported units. And I just like I said, I don't trust um, that the coatings on those units are genuine. A lot of times they'll say it's food safe and um, it's not, and sometimes they make them out of steel, and then they they're tinned, and that tin is not securely you know put on there. So I would avoid uh, a Chinese-made machine at all costs. I just would not, I wouldn't want to own one. So I'd feel pretty good about this one, Aaron, and I hope you have good luck with it and and uh, happy grinding, dude. Um, I want to thank everybody out there, and also just give a quick plug for my upcoming course, Food Storage Feast. We're getting ready to launch this just in the coming days. And uh, it's a course to teach you how to cook with your stored preps, corn, wheat, rice, whatever it might be. We've got um, a lot of great information about this, and it's going to be rich with videos. There's over 40 videos already done. If you, if you visit HarvestEating.com, you'll see uh, the first post on there. There's a sample chapter and a couple of videos for you to check out, and there's also um, an email list that you can get on to get a discount. Anybody that's an MSB member, I'll have Jack uh, put a link in there because you'll be getting 15% off. I appreciate everybody's support on that. I think it'll be a really useful course for those of you that store food. And uh, that's it. Um, Merry Christmas to everybody. Hope everyone has a safe holiday, good turkey, good prime rib, and uh, we'll check you out next year. Take care.
1: All right good st- good stuff from Chef Keith Snow and uh when you ask questions on equipment you're less likely to end up hungry by the end of his segment. Uh, next up, I have a question I kicked over to Paul, uh, Wheaton with an, am- and he has an amazing guest, uh, expert council member with him to answer this. It's a question on heating a whole house with a rocket stove and using a, a, uh, a brushy material and that's available in abundance and completely and totally sustainable like, uh, Russian olive as a fuel source. Paul and Ernie, take it away. Record. Yeah. Travis, hi.
6: (laughs) We have a lot to say. I'm here with Ernie Wisner, uh, the most experienced rocket mass heater builder in the world, who just happens to be at my house when you ask your question. Say hi, Ernie. (laughs) Uh, Hi, Travis. (laughs) So, um, there's like, I want to, I think I've got about five hours of things to say about his question. Um, Let's start with a rocket mass heater in the north. Uh, okay, so we live at 3,600
7: feet. We only heat with a rocket mass heater. Um, our house isn't very big. It's 800 square feet. It gets 30 plus below zero up on our mountain with wind chill. We don't have a hard time heating our house with a quart of wood in winter. In fact, two years in a row we've come under a, a quart of wood. Um Most of the people that I know that are at elevation and far north also don't have a problem heating with a rocket stove. And you are in Michigan? (laughs) Um, You're not that
6: far north. (laughs) (laughs) There are people that are norther than that. Far norther than that. And they're, they're, they're heating themselves with just a rocket mass heater.
7: The reason why you don't hear a lot about it is because they work. And nobody really needs to say anything about it.
6: So. Now, I think we could probably talk for four hours just on all the rocket mass heaters we have either seen or heard about, which we've reclassified as freak shows of flaming death. Yes, that that some of them were actually following rocket mass heater designs, and they did not work well. And they're typically building from the old rocket mass heater book, which we've come so much farther yes. in the last ten years. Since that book was, was first put out. Yes. Um, now, I think that uh, rather than focusing on all the negatives, which which would be an adventure, yes. and I would love to talk about the ones that didn't work, I think an important thing is is we're currently sitting in Montana, and it's been, while, I think while you were here, it dropped below zero at least once. Yeah. And uh, uh, we're heating exclusively with the rocket mass heater. And not only that, but I think we're going to get to the end of the winter having heated uh, this, I think we're about somewhere between 1,200 and 1,400 square foot home. Um, We'll have heated it uh, with uh, about a half a quart of wood. And there's
7: there's lots of things you can do wrong, right? The reason why we wrote the, the current book on rocket mass heaters is because there are lots of things you can do wrong. There's things, if you don't understand them, and you go with the picture that springs in your head from the old book. You can do them wrong, and we've gone, like Paul said, we've gone a long way beyond that. Um, I'm not going to go into details. <laughs> I'd say for Michigan, build an eight-inch system, build it right, insulate it really well, and put in the put in a sufficiency of mass. And you can check our book out from the from the library, and you can. Um, and and just look through it. Uh,
6: then we're getting to the Russian olive. Oh yes. Now I've got I think four hours to say about Russian olives, but um, I have never personally burned Russian olive, but I've heard of people who have. <laughs> it has a high BTU, um, much higher than than conifers. Yes. Um, and and uh, there's there's a lot of wonderful benefits to Russian olive. And it's got a bad reputation, which I think is because of people that don't understand the the plant. Um, but I thought that the things because I mentioned Russian all up to you about using and Rocket Mass Heater, and you said some things I did not know that I thought were amazing. Now, when answering this question, I think that an important thing is is to say that you have a degree in botany. Yes, and then. um Time passed, life happened, and then there was this thing that you were confronted with, the rocket mass heater at Ianto's place, who invented it, and then you've now built 700 rocket mass heaters. So it's like the perfect question for you, because you have this long, rich relationship with the Russian olive and rocket mass heaters. Now, <laughs> say the thing about the about the, about the Russian olive in a conventional wood
7: stove. Okay, one of the reasons why Russian olive has a bad reputation is because if you don't split a chunk of Russian olive up into relatively small pieces, you can throw it in a wood stove and it will sit there and look at you <laughs> unblemished for hours. At times. And it kind of depends on what environment that Russian olive grew in. But but people find it hard to burn in a in a conventional wood stove. It is a very high oil content wood. And it has a good bark for resisting forest fires. Which means that if like nine bark in the Pacific Northwest, if you throw it in the fire, oftentimes what you'll get is a cold fire. Because you're basically trying to heat this whole mass up. Now, for the rocket stove if you get too big of Russian olive you are going to have to split it down you're not splitting it to dry it out necessarily just to make it small enough to fit into the into the stove and that's not eh. paul likes wrist size I like basically as big as I can fit in the firebox um pieces of wood so it's ba you split it down to at least at my place we have an eight inch system I split it just like I would for my wood stove and there's no problem with it. I really like Russian olive in the in a in a rocket stove because it has that high a fuel value It's kinky it's got a diving grain there's all kinds of things with it that make it a little more difficult to split when it's dry so you split it wet um, <clears throat> and as far as the overrun with Russian olive, uh, to date, I've never seen a place that was overrun with Russian olive. Um, I've seen where you have Russian olive hedges that were mostly planted on purpose. And then, uncared for, you'll get some vegetative propagation from them. But uh, and, and I'm sure somebody will come up
6: with a place that's totally overrun with Russian olive yep. that I've never seen before. Um, not, now that's not really part of the question, but I, I really want to continue that conversation for four hours. Because here in Montana, they're sort of outlawing the Russian olive, which just makes me so angry. But um, I believe that the way that you phrased this earlier was is that if you put a Russian olive into your conventional fireplace, then it will stick its tongue out at you and blow a raspberry.
0: <laughs> you suck! I hate
8: you! I will not burn for you!
6: So, Or what it will do is you will eventually get it to ignite. Yes. And in which case, you might possibly damage your conventional wood stove. That is the other problem with it, is that it's an
7: oily wood. So when it does light, it voids the warranty on your wood stove, Mm -hmm. because now your wood stove is glowing cherry red.
6: And the door never quite quite closes closes the thing.
7: (laughs) Um, I've had both of these experiences. I I, I have a long-time use of wood stoves period and I've used a lot of box stoves and you can mix russian olive in with pine or something like that if it's split it'll burn um it's not you know if you if you you have to adjust your wood mix to get it to burn right in your box stove otherwise It's just going to coal up, and you're going to wind up with a bunch of hardwood chunk coal in there that isn't going to go anywhere for a long time. So it gets in your way of putting more wood in and all kinds of other things.
6: That's my experience with Russian olives. And then the good news is is that inside of a rocket mass heater, they burn magnificently every time.
7: Yeah, it burns from one end. You get a lot of ash. Russian olives are very good at, at mining the dirt, so you get a lot of... Uh, if you happen to have a soap maker around they 're going to love you because you get caustic soda out of, out of the ash, like nobody 's business um, a lot
6: of trace minerals, things like that, but you know like like the rocket mass heaters that we 've been building, you and I mm-hmm. have been building in the last four years we 've been pushing those past three thousand degrees, yeah, which is like with with Russian olive, not a big deal yeah. No. <clears throat> but with a conventional wood stove, to get to that cherry red, um, I mean, the, I think a conventional wood stove typically operates at a temperature of about, at the highest, twelve hundred degrees. Does that no. sound about right? No. What are you? What are you going to say? About nine hundred degrees. You think nine hundred? Because, because I kind of feel like um, you start getting. Because I've seen conventional wood stoves burn cherry red. What what temperature is cherry red? Uh, about. A 1,000 degrees. About 1,000? I thought it was more like 1,200, 1,400. You can
7: look I it can up look it on up. the okay. net, and you can see they have charts that show you what temperature the steel is at what okay. color. All right. And when you're going red, you are well into the void my warranty and throw me away <laughs> zone <laughs> because the steel can't handle it. What you're doing at anything close enough to 1,200 degrees to get a clean burn out of, and that's almost a hard line for a clean burn. When you're going up that high, you're pulling the carbon out of the steel, and the steel begins to delaminate. Mm -hmm. If you consistently do this, all of a sudden the carbon goes bye-bye. All those nice uh, cast iron grids and things that they put in these stoves that Mm -hmm. everybody's replacing every couple years, you're burning the carbon out of it. Those things are cast iron, and you're destroying them with the hottest part of the fire, which is down at the bottom of the fire, in the belly of the stove that's usually coated with bricks. Yeah, yeah. So if you're doing that, think about what's happening up top. Right? So if you're getting the top of your stove to glow cherry red in a conventional wood stove, the top of it isn't the hottest part. Underneath inside the coals, right behind the coals on each end is the hottest part.
6: Mm-hmm.
7: So you're just you're just destroying the heck out of your stove. In a rocket stove, Because the hot spot is in the heat riser, and the heat riser is made out of brick, brick doesn't care if it's 1,200 degrees or 3,000 degrees. It'll irrigate slightly on the surface. Better than that, it doesn't care. And we've got one sitting here in your living room that's burning at
6: over 3,000 degrees pretty routinely. Right. This one's the special one, though. Yeah, it is special. And and so, which could... The one in my living room could very well be the template for the, the future of all rocket mass heaters, but you know we've got a lot to do still um, yeah. in that space. Uh, but the, the the important thing is okay, Russian olive rocket mass heater. I do think that there's one other point to make if you're going to think about Russian olive as firewood, and that is Russian olive uh, is a coppicing species. It is, and so you'll go in there and you'll you'll cut out what you need. You'll cut it green so you can chop it up. Right. And then the next year, there'll be um, five more took its place. Well, you'll have suckers come up. <coughs> now, Russian mm-hmm. olive is great
7: for having suckers come up. Because if you do very little maintenance to them, you can get, them, you can get long poles out of it. Mm-hmm. Which is essentially what the... It's essentially perfect firewood, right? A two- or three-year-old long, 20-foot-long pole that's four inches or five inches in diameter at the base is a easy to easy to split if you need to split it into kindling b it's perfect sizes for most fireboxes and you can cut it to
6: length okay i'm going to i'm going to wrap up this whole series for travis um and and i want to ask you one quick question cuz travis is burning through a lot of wood with a conventional wood stove let's suppose that travis in order to heat his home this winter is going to end up burning 6 cords of wood so now if he replaced his conventional wood stove with a rocket mass heater, how much wood do you think he might need next year?
7: Well, the gentleman that we have that currently has a wood stove in upper Michigan
6: in the UP uh burned a cord last year. So one cord. How many cords did that guy burn in previous years ten. with a conventional? So he went from 10 cords to one cord. Yes. Yeah. That's... I mean, that's been my experience too. And, and we've done some experiments in the last two years that kind of says, wow, we might be getting able, getting into a space where we could do better than one tenth the wood. So one tenth, some people kind of sneered at it a couple of years ago, but now we're getting a lot more good rocket mass heaters being built and, and one tenth the wood is becoming far more the norm. And now we're doing experiments that say we might be able to move beyond one tenth. Well, one of the things to
7: one of the things to think about, and it's probably my fault talking about this, is Erica and I spent an entire winter measuring the amount of wood that it would take to keep our house at seventy degrees for the entire winter. We burned a cord and a third. Mm-hmm. I burned twenty three pounds of wood a day.
5: Mm-hmm.
7: That was it. Okay, 23 pounds takes six hours to burn in a rocket stove.
6: You load it twice. <laughs> I, and, and now our place here, where you're staying, is significantly bigger than your place. Yeah. And and I think that we're going to pull off this winter doing a half a cord, but we don't even have any curtains up. Right. And, and we don't have, like, an enclosed uh, porch that you come right. into. And I, I just kind of feel like, and then on top of that, you and I and Erica have been arguing for hours about ways that we might improve this rocket mass heater. I think that if we tried next winter, we might be able to heat this house with a quarter of a cord. Okay. I need to say a couple of things about this system.
7: A, it's a pebble style, so it's not as efficient as a solid cob stove. Right. You and I both know that. Yeah. Yeah. B, this one is not optimized for the temperatures it produces versus the bench length. So if we wanted this stove to be a lot more efficient, we could put a longer mass on it and drop your exhaust temperatures to 60 degrees instead of 200-some, which is what it's benched at now, because of
6: the other stuff that makes this stove special. Well, the, the key is is that I think we're getting more and more. I mean, there's in the world of rocket mass heaters, we're seeing oodles of opportunity for because it sounds like he wrote something or he heard something or something. We're talking about Travis now. Yes, that suggested that rocket mass heaters don't put out a lot of heat. Now it's true, they don't put a lot out. They don't put out very much heat at all when there's no fire in them. Yes. The that's the design. They put out heat very slowly and it's just a little bit. Um so but all right, we're way past our timeline. Okay. <laughs> we always <laughs> past our timeline.
1: <laughs> all right. I hope that helps, Travis. Thanks, Jack. All right. Next up I have a question for a financial guru, John Pugliano. Uh this is a question uh, from a guy named Leland that is in a situation where he's got a fairly attractive, compelling reason to invest a a significant amount of money in his 401k due to employer match, but not quite totally where he wants to be preparedness-wise even, basically, and wants to make a decision on what to do with his money. And for a very well-thought-out, logical way to look at that, let's hear from John Pugliano himself.
8: Hello, TSP listeners. Today we have a question from Leland. And he has a common question that I think is a really good way to start out the new year because Leland is wondering about whether he should be contributing to his employer's uh, 401k plan or if he should be using that money to build up in his preps and other areas like food storage, you know, survival type items. And this is something that a lot of people struggle with. So I'm glad Leland asked the question. Let's break it down see what his specific concerns are, and then you can kind of relate that to where your journey is with self-preparedness. Okay, so Leland, some background information. He's 29 years old. He has a fiancé. He's the father of two. He has no retirement savings. He doesn't specifically say, but it doesn't sound like he has yet built up any uh, food storage type stocks or anything like that, but he does have about 10% of his net worth in precious metals. He started a new job, and his employer offers a two-tiered matching program, and and this is uh, very common. Many employers have a tiered system where they don't match everything dollar for dollar 100%. Now, if I'm understanding Leland's program here, he'll receive a 100% match on the first 2% he contributes, but then only a 50% match on the next 3%, which would take Leland up to a total contribution of 5% of his own money, but that last 3% is only matched 50%. And if you do the math on that, if Leland contributes 5% of his paycheck into this 401k plan, and his employer matches it, that adds another 3.5%. And so he ends up saving a total of 8.5% of his income. Now, personally, I don't think that's enough, but at least it's a step in the right direction. And what's really important about this and why this is such a great gift from the employer That's a 70% tax-deferred return on his investment. Now, 70% isn't as good as 100%, but it's still a fantastic risk-free return. And remember, this is done in a 401k, and so you're not going to be taxed on it until that money is withdrawn. And hopefully, in Leland's case, since he's only 29 years old, he's not going to be touching that money for the next three decades or more. And so it'll grow and compound tax-free, provided that he invests it properly. But before he can ever invest it properly, he needs to get money in there and build it up. And there's no better way to build up your retirement fund than to have your employer match your contributions. So I highly recommend that you contribute up to the amount that your employer matches, even if they're only matching 50 or 75%. It's still a great return on your investment. Now, let's put this into further perspective. If Leland doesn't do anything with that other than put it in something that's even ultra-safe, like a money market fund or a short-term government bond fund, where he's really, you know, at today's interest rates, going to earn nothing on it, even if he does that and he takes zero risk with the money within that 401k, since he's starting out with a 70% return on his money, you know what? That money can sit there for the next 10 years 100% safe, And more or less, he's going to be averaging 7% a year return on his money over a decade by doing nothing with it other than keeping it in something that's totally safe. Now, I don't recommend that it just sit there for 10 years and do absolutely nothing. But for people that don't understand investing and don't want to learn anything about it, then that's still a very safe and effective way to build a portion of your retirement income. And it all has to do with getting that employer match. So I encourage everybody to do it. Now, let's specifically go on and look at the rest of Leland's questions. He's asking, well, you know, should that money be better spent somewhere else? Now, again, first off, Leland, we're talking about 5% of your income. And I know for people that are struggling and living paycheck to paycheck, that's a large amount to contribute, but you simply have to find a way to to commit at least that much or you're never going to be able to build any wealth. And, And it all comes down to lifestyle decisions. Because if you can't put away 5% of your income for long-term savings, you're not going to be putting away money for other things that you need, like term life insurance, like an emergency fund, like the food storage and the survival goods that you talk about. You mentioned you have 10% in precious metals. And while it's not bad to have 5 to 10% in precious metals, it just sounds like that that's all you have because you don't have any retirement savings. So you've put all your eggs in the precious metal basket. And that's never a good thing. You know, you have to look at the old cliche. Life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's about doing the right things in a small way consistently day after day after day. So start small. Go back and listen to some of those other episodes that Jack has talked about incrementally building your preps. You don't have to go out and buy a year supply of MREs. Go out and buy a case of beans and a bag of rice when it's on sale or, you know, whatever you're going to eat. Don't buy just one can that week when they're on sale by three or four. You don't have to have an elaborate cistern that holds 1,500 gallons of water. Start filling up some old two-liter soda bottles with free water from the tap. Do things small. Do things incrementally. Learn to earn more money. Learn to save it. And then eventually learn to invest it. It's all about putting balance in your life. And in your particular situation, I would definitely start by putting that 5% in your retirement fund so you're getting a 70% match by your employer. Leland, thanks for your question. You might want to check out the Wealth studying podcast. That's where I talk about items like this. It's not only about trading stocks, but it's also about learning how to develop wealth building skills that start with the kind of question that you're asking. So Happy New Year to everybody. For the Expert Council, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Hi,
3: this is Jeff Lawton here, and I'm coming to you from Australia. And um, I'm here to answer your questions about permaculture and permaculture design and um, general self-sufficiency. If you want to know more about what I'm up to, then you can look me up on jefflawtononline.com and also on the website, the Permaculture Circle where I have a lot of free information and a lot of free videos. Okay, let's get on to our first question here. And our first question is a tricky one. What can, I, what can we do done to rehabilitate hydrophobic soils, and what causes soil to repel water in the first place? And um, this is from someone in Metro uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. And they've got all kinds of issues with an area that gets uh, partially flooded sometimes. They crop sometimes. Uh, water gets uh, pumped out when it's flooded um, up to big uh, catchment dams so farmers can keep irrigating in the area. But um, when, the, when the soil's dried out and uh, the water table's dragged down by the agricultural irrigators, they get a hydrophobic situation, which is where the soil repels water. And um, this can be quite difficult and uh, can be a bit of a problem. Now, it's great information I've been given with a question, but one thing I haven't got is whether it's sandy soil or it's clay soil. And because the description is kind of like a river delta, um, a floodplain, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it's probably sandy soil. So I'm going to answer this as if it's sandy soil. So uh, let's get into it. Um it's often these uh, fine blackish sands um, and, and that get a problem or dark sands, and what happens is they get uh, invaded by a hydrophobic soil fungi, and that makes them really difficult to wet, but the uh, fungi kind of nets it together and, and sort of stops erosion on uh, mass. What we can do is we can um, ridge the soil to make basins. Um, that can really help. Um, and then um that that helps the water soak in because you've got sort of little soakage basins and um, then you can um, every every square meter or square yard as it would be in America, you can core out a bit of sand, get down and make a bit of a, a deep hole, and drop in some um, some loam or some uh, particularly clay loam um, and and drop it down to about um, four inches wide and about uh, a foot deep. Um, composting right across the area and building up organic matter um, as long as the organic matter gets over eight percent of the of the surface soil then um, the hydrophobic action will stop um, you can also get the soil to hold on to more moisture by adding a handful of benonite, um about a handful every square yard or uh, fine powdered clay if you can get it maybe from a clay pan but bendonite is something you can buy in a packet it's actually a kaolin substance it's a fine clay really helps you wet up those sands and keep moisture obviously mulching thoroughly and then planning cover crops behind and um keeping the surface well mulched o- over a broad area what some people do is they they deep plough in the autumn um down about 18 inches and um and by uh, a rotary plough and a chopper mixing up the, the the top soil that's not wetting, it's hydrophobic, and um, going about four to eight inches into the subsoil, and you kind of mix the two together, and then cover cropping immediately to prevent any erosion. And, and the cover crop or green manure is then adding some sort of deep rooting into the system. And then if you start planting trees, in amongst it so you have contour lines of trees and crop in between the contour line of trees you get a pretty good success there um, and that that helps you over the broader area so that's that's one way out of that problem or a few ways out of that problem there good stuff and in general
1: all of those things will work there's a lot of different ways to solve this problem as jeff alluded to i do want to point something out though i've seen i've seen hydrophobic compost Pretty much a pure organic matter breakdown, you know, good compost that was mistreated and dried out and became completely, totally 100% dried out. I remember one time uh, Nick Ferguson and I were dealing with some compost that they had made at um at Permethos Farm in West Virginia. It was a huge pile, and it had rained for like two days because we were doing an event, so that's what happens, right? And... uh <clears throat> I think we pulled off a, a, about an inch of the, the top. It was kind of damp, and the whole pile was bone dry underneath after a day or two of, of steady, steady, steady West Virginia rain. So when that happens, it it, it can sometimes, you know, like, like Jeff said, alluding to using different clays and stuff like that, but there are also organic wetting agents that simply can be mixed. They're a concentrate. They're mixed with, you know, water. In and this doesn't work on... I guess you could do it with a large spray tank or whatever, you know, on broad acreage, but, you know, the homeowner that's dealing with a garden plot or something, if this has occurred, or if you end up with some compost you've bought and it seems to be hydros- hydrophobic, these wetting agents can be applied either with a sprayer or with uh, just basically a watering can. And they're actually quite effective. So that would be one other option. Uh, I don't have a lot of experience with them, but in in uh, prep for this, I did kind of dig into Amazon and find a decent one that's worked well for people with good reviews. And I have a link in the show notes. Again, they're called Soil Wetting Agents. And you do want to make sure you're using something that's an organic product if you're doing that. Next question. I just mentioned them. The man himself, Nick Ferguson. Nick is going to answer a question here about starting seeds indoors. Nick Ferguson, man, take it away.
9: Hey there, it's Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com calling in to answer your questions on homesteading permaculture, plant propagation, and how to make a homestead work on a tight budget. And the question I have today is on starting seeds indoors for your spring garden. And it's about that time to get tomatoes and peppers started if you're in the south, and it won't be too long before even those of you up in the frigid tundra north of the Mason-Dixon line will need to do the same. So, first we need to know a little bit about plant physiology. There's a growing tip, a stem, leaves, and roots. And along the stem are swellings where a branch or a leaf pops out the side. And if you follow all the way down the plant, you'll see it happens quite regularly. And those swelling points are called internodes, or just nodes for short. And when the plant is competing for nutrients and light in a natural environment it'll race for the sunlight, trying to get above the competition so it can spread its leaves out and catch all the light it possibly can. And the seedling knows to do this based on how much light it's getting. So if your seedlings are leaning or they look like they're reaching for light, then that means they aren't getting enough of it. And the consequence of not providing enough light means that they will be spindly, you know, and they'll have long internode spacing. That's the the telltale sign that it's it's reaching is if it has that long internode spacing if those spacings are really far apart if they're um if they're short and stocky they have short internode spacing that's how you can tell that they're getting good amount of sunlight Uh, if they have long internode spacing they won't be nearly as strong as they could be otherwise so if you've had that problem with spindly plants in the past then you need to get more light on them that's the key critical thing i can't get into in, in depth on like all the things that you need to do with um starting your seeds and taking care of them but i have enough time here today to talk about the lighting so let's uh Let's talk about the cheapest and best option, and that's sunlight. If you have a bright, sunny, south-facing window and you can start them in the window, then do that. You can buy mylar-backed insulation panels fairly cheaply at most big home improvement stores and cut them into pieces about two foot tall, however long is practical. Then tape some dowel rods to the non-reflective side with some duct tape. And that'll make for a panel that you can prop up with its own legs, the dowel rods being the legs, and you can put that on the opposite side of the seedlings from the window, facing the window, so the mylar is pointing towards the seedlings. So when the light bounces in, it will bounce off of that back to the seedlings, and it'll help to reflect some of that sunlight back onto the plants and prevent them from leaning as much as they would otherwise. Um, you can also invest in one of those wax cylinder-operated vent openers at... uh greenhouse supply stores online like uh, farm tech or uh, grower supply um, and you can get some of that uh, they're, they're like 75 bucks and you can get some of the cheap greenhouse plastic remnants it's not much because you're not buying a big piece they're the remnants you know they're four or five six foot wide and get one of those openers Get some closed cell foam insulation boards, some scrap lumber, and make yourself a small greenhouse slash cold frame that will automatically vent open if it gets too hot in there. And then all you need to add to make that perfectly optimal is an insulated floor with some gravel on top of it or some bottles filled with water for thermal mass to help hold the heat in. Then you put an insulation panel on top at night so it's an insulated box now to keep them warm, and then you remove it when the sun comes up. But if that's not an option, maybe because it's too cold or that's cost prohibitive, or you just don't have space outside, um, then you need to grow them indoors where you have maybe no good light. If that's the case, then you can go relatively cheaply, get um, T8 shop light fixtures, they're pretty cheap. You might be able to get them for free on Craigslist or next to nothing on Craigslist. And you'll need about one bulb for every two inches of coverage, and that should do the trick. So let's say you have an area that you need to light that's, we'll call it four foot long and two foot wide. That's how big the, the area is on your table that uh, you have all your seed starts. And you'll need about 12 bulbs to cover it. If you're going with those T8 shop light bulbs, then use the daylight color bulbs that are um, at least 5500K. 5, It'll say 5500K 5, on them, and that's the that's the color temperature. That's not like how much energy it uses or anything like that. not how powerful the light is. The Kelvin temperature is kind of the the spectrum of color that is being emitted from those bulbs. So a higher number up around 10,000 will be very close to daylight actual color temperature so the normal bulbs that you get are around 2,500 or so 2,500 and that's not going to do very good for you you want that higher color temperature so don't use just the standard bulbs that come in it. You're not going to have good results. You want to put at least 5500K bulbs in there. If you can, if they have them, and they're not too expensive, then get this 6500K, the 6500K. 6, 6, that should be much better. That's actually pretty close to grow light uh, color temp. Generally, the closer you can get to... 10,000 Kelvin, the better for these new plants because we're talking about vegetative growth. They need a lot of blue light and a little bit of red light. Um, and the next step up from that is to buy an actual grow light fixture. And right now, honestly, the best bang for your buck is still to go with fluorescent fixtures. But these are T5 fixtures and these are higher output uh, fixtures than the T8 and for a fixture that's four foot by two foot, it's going to be you know four foot long and two foot wide. You can get away with a little bit wider of a space, a little bit more coverage than that, but generally you're going to want to stick with about that much um, plants underneath it. And that's going to be a fixture that's four foot long that houses eight bulbs, and they run about 180 bucks. They have some some cheapo ones on Amazon. Uh, but I like the Envirogrow or AgroBright, I think, um, and I've got a link for you. Um, I'll I'll give that to Jack. And they're four foot long, eight bulb. That's what I suggest. And right now they're like 180 bucks, so that's kind of expensive. Um, but it's what you need to do if you want to have good, healthy plants that aren't sad looking. So the trick to keeping those short, stocky plants is to keep them in a bright spot where they'll grow well. If you can, try to use sunlight. It's way cheaper. The T5 grow lights run me about $50 a month in electricity because I have two of them. So they run about $25 a month just in electricity. I'd much rather see you spend all that money on a more permanent solution that'll use a better source of light than an electric fixture, But again, if it's down to using a fluorescent fixture or having no seed started, then by all means, get one and get some stuff done. For 50 episodes of my podcast and a couple dozen blog articles that are over 3,000 words long apiece that are chock full of helpful homesteading information, go to homegrownliberty.com. I have a couple podcasts specifically on starting seeds and taking care of them. They're episodes 2, 3, and 8. So definitely check those blog posts and podcast episodes out if you're gearing up for some spring gardening. I'm Nick Ferguson. I hope you have a wonderful day. Do good things.
1: Great stuff is always from Nick, and I I completely agree with the lights that that is the best solution. I've seen so many people try to start indoor seedlings by putting them in a window or something like that, and it just generally doesn't work out really well. Sometimes it does. 90% of the time it doesn't. And what happens is that person spends a lot of money on seeds, a lot of time putting everything together, they're very unhappy and they end up down at the nursery buying their plants. There's no shame in buying plants from a nursery. I usually buy some at least every year just because of convenience. Uh, but, you know, lighting is really the key. Uh, and another thing you can do, uh, if you have mild winters where it's too cold, leave them out, but you have warm days is if you don't have too many plants you're starting, move them in and out. That's, that's another great idea. Uh, next up I have a question for Erica Strauss on, Pre sanitizer or pre sterilizing uh, canning jars. And, uh, I know what I thought about this, and I'm thinking, I don't know. I mean, Erica has to carry insurance because she's an author for this stuff, and well, she, yeah, she pretty much feels exactly like I do about it. Erica, take it away.
4: Hi, guys. This is Erica calling in to answer another Survival Podcast expert counsel question. Since it's the new year, happy 2017, Jack asked us expert Council members to do a quick reminder about the type of questions each of us are best suited to answer. And I think as most regular listeners know, I'm here to answer all your questions about productive homekeeping. But what does that mean? Well, basically, if your question would be appropriate for kind of an old-school farm grandma, I'm probably the expert council member you want to talk to. So if your question is on food preservation, stuff like canning, pickling, or fermentation, I'm your girl. If you have questions about how to keep a home in a more natural way with fewer store-bought chemical products, I can help. Um, If you have questions about cooking, and especially about how to be more organized or more frugal in the kitchen, I'm happy to share my thoughts. So bottom line... If it's a farm grandma type question, I'd be happy to take a crack at it for you. And I also know my way around a Pacific Northwest kitchen garden pretty well. So if you happen to have veggie growing questions and you're in the maritime regions of British Columbia, Washington or Oregon, I can likely offer some advice there, too. So with that little intro out of the way, let's get on to this week's question on canning cleanliness from David. David asks, what are acceptable ways for sterilizing canning jars? Most canning books and your previous expert counsel responses mention sterilizing jars in boiling water, but some folks place clean jars in the oven, slowly bringing them up to 220 degrees Fahrenheit. Is oven sterilization safe? What are the pros and cons of each method? First, I'm going to do a little nitpick on language just to ensure we're all on the same page. What David is referring to in his question is pre-sterilization of jars. That is to say, ensuring that the jars are completely free from bacteria or other microorganisms before filling the jars with your food item. And here's something you might not expect me to say, but it's almost always unnecessary to actually pre-sterilize your jars before filling, if you follow modern canning practices, including processing in a boiling water bath canner or a pressure canner for the full recommended time. So right now, you're probably thinking to yourself, this is the girl who wants to make sure I understand the microbiology of Clostridium botulinum, and now she's telling me I can ignore sterile jars? Here's what's up with that. First, clean is not the same as sterile. In all cases, your canning jars for water bath or for pressure canning must be scrupulously clean. Perfectly, perfectly clean jars, no exception. So all dirt, dust, all residue, anything like that must be completely removed from your jars before filling. Nothing I'm about to say should be construed as an excuse to get sloppy with your canning hygiene. But sterilization is a step further than clean. It's killing the stuff you can't see, the germs, the bacteria, the microorganisms. And the most common way to sterilize jars, as David noted in his question, is to submerge the jars in boiling water for 10 minutes. So why is this step not necessary? Well, if your canning recipe calls for a processing time at a full boil for At least a minimum of 10 minutes, your jars will be safely sterilized by the act of processing itself. In other words, the important thing is that the jars get a full 10 minutes at the boil. But it's okay if they are filled with food when that happens. And since the act of processing will itself sterilize the jars, it's not actually necessary to start with pre-sterilized jars. Makes sense, right? Now, there are a few exceptions to this pre-sterilization not required advice. First, if your recipe calls for a very short processing time, anything under 10 minutes, you would need to boil your jars to pre-sterilize. The only thing I know of that has a processing time of less than 10 minutes are some uh, high-acid, high-sugar jams, which can have processing times of 5 minutes. If you want, with these very short processing time jams and jellies, you can do what I do and simply process those products, those jams, for 10 minutes instead of 5 to avoid the separate pre-sterilization process. You can always process longer. Um, Sometimes there can be some texture problems, but from a safety standpoint, it's never an issue to process longer. Second, some recipes will call for a lower temperature pasteurization treatment instead of a boiling water processing. This is something you would primarily see done with pickles, where maintaining a crisp texture is very important, and the high temperature processing can be more likely to result in a mushy pickle. Uh, in a low temperature pasteurization treatment for pickles, instead of heating the water to boiling and maintaining that at a boil at 212 degrees Fahrenheit for 15 minutes, the water is heated to 180 80 degrees fahrenheit and then is maintained very precisely between 180 and 185 for 30 minutes and this pasteurization method is trickier it has less room for error in many ways and there's more chances that some of those microbes or bacteria might be able to kind of like sneak through the process so if you're using this technique you would definitely want to start with jars that had been fully pre-sterilized So other than those two main exceptions, most modern canning recipes don't actually require pre-sterilization of the jars. So assuming your canning recipe is is this modern thing that doesn't actually require the pre-sterilization, why does every canning book in the world tell you to keep your jars in a pot of simmering water while you're preparing your jam or your tomatoes or your pickles or whatnot to get ready to can? Well, the answer there doesn't have anything to do with canning safety, really, at least not in a foodborne illness kind of way. Jars are kept in a pot of simmering water before filling because of thermal shock. Thermal shock, as it applies to us canners, is basically just jars being exposed to a temperature difference that is dramatic enough to cause the jars to crack or shatter. If you've been canning a while, you've probably run into this. Maybe you put a carefully filled and lidded jar into a pot of boiling water and then you hear this sort of ominous pop sound and you check your pot and there's these sad floating bits of food in the water and one of your jars seems to just have completely lost its bottom that's normally how it happens with thermal shock um you know the cause for this it's a fairly common canning mishap is simply putting jars that are too cool into water that is too hot and it's just that temperature difference that causes um It causes a shock to the glass that causes that popping and that cracking. Keeping your jars pre-warmed in a pot of simmering water until you're ready to fill them reduces the chance of a jar cracking tremendously. Now, in his question, David asked about oven sterilization, specifically if it was safe to sterilize jars in an oven by slowly heating them up to 220 degrees Fahrenheit. The answer is no, not really, or at the very least, I can't guarantee it. And the reason has to do with the way heat moves through air versus the way it moves through water. Think of it this way. Everyone has stuck their hand into a 350-degree oven and pulled out a sheet pan of cookies, right? Unless there's some sort of freak accident, briefly plunging your hand into a chamber of 350-degree hot air does nothing. Your hand is fine, And now imagine, even for a moment, plunging your hand well past the wrist into a pot of water at the full boil. You're probably cringing even thinking about it. But the water is far cooler than the air in the oven, right? At 212 degrees Fahrenheit, it's actually 138 degrees cooler than 350 degree air. But you know instinctively that putting your hand into boiling water would be an absolute horror, and your hand would probably never recover. And I invoke this mental exercise, this image, to demonstrate that it's not just temperature that we care about when it comes to canning. It's also heat transfer. Simply put, water is far more effective than air as a way to transfer heat into an object. We know that a pot of boiling water will transfer enough heat to those jars to sterilize them in 10 minutes. We can't say the same thing for an oven. And that doesn't even touch on oven heat regulation and variability. When I worked as a personal chef, I always brought an oven thermometer to my clients' homes because it's very common for an oven to run 25 or even 50 degrees hot or cold of what the knob indicates the oven should be at. So, no, I'm sorry, but I just can't recommend oven sterilization. There's just too many variables. And... Parenthetically, these are also the reasons why oven canning or doing the processing part of your canning in the oven is not considered safe at all, and you should really stay away from it. However, if the goal isn't to pre-sterilize the jars, but simply to keep them warm to avoid thermal shock, you can totally use your oven. You can also run them through the high heat cycle on your dishwasher and keep the dishwasher door closed until you're ready to fill your jars. Go crazy. I I have no problem with any of these common techniques if you find them convenient. As long as they are being used to keep your perfectly clean jars warm to avoid thermal shock and not because you actually need a sterile jar for food safety reasons. And that said, personally, I do use the simmering pot method because I find it's the most convenient. So here's how my setup works. I wash my canning jars very well, and I put a rack on the bottom of the pot I'll use um, to do my water bath processing. And I put the jars that I'll be using on the rack, and then I fill up everything, the jars and the pot, with warm water. Put the whole kit on the stove to heat. Once the water comes to a boil, I put a lid on the pot. The jars are still in there. I keep the heat in, and I turn the heat down to low. Now, in the meantime, while everything's been coming up to that boil, I've been preparing my food to can. And when I'm ready to fill my jars, I take the jars from the pot and tip the hot water that's in those jars... Back into the pot. I turn the heat back up under my pot. And as I fill my jars, uh, following our standard canning practices like wipe the rims and, you know, finger tight and all that stuff. By the time I've filled up all my jars, the water is typically at a nice hard simmer. I carefully lower my jars into the water. The jars are hot. The water's hot. No thermal shock. No problems. No jars cracking. And when the water returns to that full boil, I start my timer for processing. So I find that this method just keeps the canning sprawl, very contained and efficient. I know with water bath canning, I need to heat up a pot of water for the processing anyway. Um, But if I can use the energy of preheating that water for processing to bring my jars up to temp to reduce the chance of jar cracking, um, to me that just makes more sense than having both the oven and the stove using energy simultaneously to keep things warm. So, David, that's my two cents on pre-sterilization, uh, oven heating, oven keeping warm, all that kind of stuff. Um, I hope this clarifies what you need to do to pre-sterilize and when you can skip pre-sterilization entirely. As always, if you have any questions, just hit me up in the comments section of today's show notes. Um, I'll check in and try and answer any questions I do get. All right, friends, this has been Erica for the Expert Council. Hey, if you like the nerdy farm grandma stuff I talk about here on TSP, you'd probably like my book. It's called The Hands-On Home, and you can read all kinds of reviews on Amazon and see if it's right for you. In the meantime, keep those questions coming. Uh, thank you, TSP community. Thank you, Jack. I will chat with you guys in a couple of weeks.
1: So, yeah, I, I completely agree with that, but I'm going to give you what I do now that I've gone into electric canning. Uh, I I still have my giant, huge, awesome, amazing, all-American, old-school canner. Um, I have to be honest that since I've got my first electric canner, I haven't drug it out of the garage into the house. I just haven't. I, I'm sure someday I'll have to can so much at one time that I will. Uh, because my Shard electric canner, which is the one that I recommend most, does quarts and four quarts per batch is usually enough to do what I do. I try to integrate canning into my life. I make a giant pot of soup, we eat it for a couple days, we can four quarts, we rock on with our life. Um, if I have to can six quarts or eight quarts with the electric canner, two batches on a you know Saturday or a Sunday watching football, it's so it's so easy, it's so hands-off that it's not a big deal to be able to do. So Uh, having a second pot on the stove with simmering water and all, I have my water heater set at about 130 degrees. I wash my jars. Um, I don't really worry about like scrubbing the hell. I mean, if if I can't see anything on it, then as far as I'm concerned, it's good. I fill them with the hot, I have the sink, you know, half full of hot water with a plug in it. And I fill the jars with hot water out of the tap. That brings the jars up in temperature enough that when I ladle hot soup or something into it, it's not going to get thermal shock. The soup brings it up further, then it goes into the canner, and the canner comes up to temperature under its own thing. Erica, because of the insurance type stuff I mentioned earlier, will not endorse a... Electric canner, um, because the National Canner Association of Dumb Asses uh, has yet to say, yes, that electricity works for canning, no matter how that electricity applies heat to the, the canner. See, if the electricity applies heat through your All-American canner on your electric range, it is never mind. I won't go there. I've ranted on that enough, but... For me, it doesn't make sense for me to get out another pot, put it on the stove, and I'm not worried. And what I'm doing, you know, what I'm always doing when I'm using that canner, even though it does have a steam can setting, uh, I'm not a jams and jelly guy. Uh, most of the stuff that would be high acid, I'm more likely to lacto-ferment because I like the added uh, health benefits and the flavor better. So I'm almost always doing things that are low acid like meats and stalks, and that means I'm pressure canning anyway, so... With pressure canning, you're pushing, what, 240, 245 degrees or something like that. Uh, and generally canning for times 30 minutes or longer. I ain't worried about it. And I think trying to sanitize a jar before it goes into a pressure canner that's going to be held over 240 degrees for 30 minutes or longer is kind of redundant to the point of just w- why, why, why would you do such a thing? Okay, so anyway, that's just my additional thoughts on that. Next up, I wanted to take kind of a piece here at the end. And I have a recording for you guys to listen to of a video on a news site uh, about what this family did, specifically this mom did. And by watching the video, I get a feeling that uh, dad's around, too. Uh, It doesn't look like her son to me standing next to her in one of the video shots. Uh, and, And maybe it just might sell a book better because the mom did it. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I'm not putting it down because I think it's an awesome story. I wouldn't be featuring it. Just saying, you know, somebody's got a book coming out. They marketing books, mom books, they sell well. That's actually a lesson for some of you out there that are thinking of niches. Stuff when moms do it sells well. It just does. And you get it's not just that it sells well, it gets media. Because they like to put crap like that on. And it's sometimes it's good crap like this. So let's hear this piece of good crap right now and let's talk about what it means forward-looking, and as far as inspiring you to figure out what you can do.
4: Welcome back. One family in Bryant turned a traumatic experience into a story they're now sharing with the world, literally. Well, Carol Brookins and her four children built their home and their new reality from the ground up. And THV 11's Bridgman Perkins has more details. After leaving a domestic violence situation and needing a new place to call home, the... Only took matters into their own hands and even now from the ground up. We had been so emotionally just kicked down. How are we going to build a house? We have no idea what we're doing. When life gives you lemons, make lemonade. I've learned that I can do anything. A life-threatening situation left this family in search of a fresh start. The hardest part of that was feeling out of control. Purchasing a home was financially impossible. But that didn't stop Kara Brookins from giving each of her children their own rooms. And we just had the idea, well, what if we built one? We can afford to buy all the supplies, so we could just put it together ourselves. With no prior knowledge, they used YouTube. And just one little bit at a time, you know, we figured out how do you lay a foundation block? Okay, what's next? You know, and it was a lot of just asking anybody we ran into at Home Depot. So how would you do this? Kara and her family built the home from the ground up in 2008, building a new life and foundation for their future. I was old enough to understand all of the bad things that were going on that led us to build the house. Hope is proud of her mother for sharing their story. It's quite a big transformation for her to suddenly share our entire lives with the world. Sharing their lives through a book, Rise, How a House Built a Family. Do something big take a big leap and just set an impossible goal, and with enough determination, you can do it.
1: So like like I said, this is kind of some PR... Uh, for these folks who did something really cool. I've done, again, just because somebody's getting PR doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It's a good thing sometimes. They get a good thing and get PR on it, so I just don't want it to be taken the wrong way. Anyway, some kind of PR, and uh, it's coming out on January 26th. Otherwise, I'd link to the book for you guys. I think it's a cool uh, book. It's going to be called Rise, How a House Built a Family. And uh, I think that's really cool, but here's another lesson for you. When you're writing a book, when you're writing a book, and you're getting close to the publication date. And unless it falls in your lap and you can't delay it, don't get your public relations, don't get your PR before the book's available. Because this is all just, that's really cool. i buy, can't buy the book. And then, so a lot of people that saw this on local TV or whatever, you know, will probably forget about it between now and the 26th since it's like the 13th. Friday the 13th, remember. Okay, so that can be unlucky. If you, uh, if you put out too much PR prior to the release of it, or at least have a place where people can get a free excerpt or something like that. Just saying, marketing 101 lesson. But the main reason I, I, I played this is, is two things. The first being what you heard her say at the end, do something big. And the second being a forward-looking thing about how people learn. I, I really kind of want to challenge you, if you're one of those people that think I've been too hard on the education system, If people can learn to build a freaking house from the ground up, and when you go watch this video, this is not a shack. This looks like something a professional builder built inside and out. If people can learn to do that by talking to people at Home Depot and Lowe's and watching YouTube videos, and there's no way on the planet that You can tell me, knowing the construction process, even if you can't do every single part of it, but knowing the process from the ground up where you could act as a general contractor to build houses for people is not a more valid skill than most people end up with coming out of college with a four-year degree. Now, if you have an engineering degree and all, we—I've I've given that concession before. But I'm talking, you know, it's your gender studies degrees and and, and you know your your basically whatever they call a liberal arts degree now because they don't call it that anymore. But your your generic degrees, your communications degrees, your marketing degrees, right? These things. They, they, the, the the a person that that goes through a one year process of building a house could literally the next day start building houses for others. They've they've learned everything they need to know. And, and there's so many other things that could springboard off of. So part of this is just, do you realize the world we live in today? How there literally is nothing you could want to do that you do not have access to the education necessary to be able to do it. And that doesn't mean that everybody will be able to do everything great. And that's a good thing. And here's what I mean by that. I can watch a video of how to carve wood uh into, you know, figurines or something like that. I'm not a very artistic person. I'm not going to do a really good job. And I probably could beat myself up for long enough to get decent at it, but I don't have passion for that. So I'm not going to spend my time doing something I really don't like that I'm not that good at. But if I really wanted to learn, I could. And and, and what that smells is opportunity, because if everybody could learn everything, then nobody would need anybody, nobody would need anything, and there'd be no opportunity for value-for-value for value exchange. But the fact that you can go out and learn something that others either don't want to learn, don't have the time to learn, or or what have you, and then provide service or product based on that knowledge is opportunity. And and this is the radical shift of education in our economy that no one wants to accept yet, but it's coming. And and I, I want to be honest about why no one wants to accept it, because of the economic repercussions it represents. I mean, what do you think the percentage of our economy is that's in education. The, uh, the government says that education represents about 3.7% of GDP. 3.7% of GDP. And that's the direct effect of education on the gross domestic product. Okay, it Suffice to say, you're talking about maybe around 4% of the actual economy in the United States is based on education. Now, but what you have to understand is anything when you get into that size of something is supporting other things. The, the teacher that has the 50 or 60 or 70 thousand dollar a year job that we're told is underpaid for working nine months a year, uh, takes that money and buys a car, they buy a house, they invest in their retirement, and that money moves and multiplies throughout the economy, spurring other sectors. So what happens if you cut something that is four percent of the U.S. economy? I actually think that number is low. I, I didn't dig deep enough to figure out how they're saying that. Um, but when I look at the size of, you know, just all the colleges, that might be considered because it was hard to find this number—the uh, K through 12 education, not colleges and universities and everything that's attached to them, because the money there is is ungodly. It's ungodly. I mean, student loan debt is just ungodly by itself. Current student loan debt in this country is about $1.4 trillion, $1.4 trillion. To kind of drive home how big that is, mortgage debt in the United States is about $14 trillion. So student loan debt alone is 10% as big as all the mortgages in the United States of America. What does it mean if that sector... It's cut by 50% because of less expensive replacement, replacing technologies and options. I mean, taxation is theft, but in the end, that money does, and governments don't steal the money and keep it. They steal the money and spend it, and therefore it ends up back in the hands of somebody else in the country. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying they, they, mechanically, that's how it works. That's Economically, that's how it flows. So what happens when that money stops moving through our economy? Now, every other sector has things that are evolving to do that to it as well, but education is one of those that's been largely immune to this, primarily because of good brainwashing and a state mandate on education, and then the state using extortion to steal money to fund it. Well, you can't fund something once it becomes irrelevant, Completely and totally irrelevant in the minds of the people you're stealing the money from. And we're heading there. We're heading there faster than people realize. People are waking up to this every day. If my kids learn more on an iPhone before they get to kindergarten than I learned in kindergarten, and they're still learning basically the same shit with a different name, Common Core, that I did in kindergarten, why are they even going to kindergarten? To learn to sit in straight lines? To learn to do what they're told, so that I don't have to pay for daycare. And 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 frankly, that is a big part of what's going on. And one of the big objections people give you when you give them a valid solution to reducing public education is, but who's going to look after the kids? The state has literally become a nanny service. We're spending, we're spending, you know, four percent of our economy to provide daycare. For parents, if you're going to make that argument. So I I think when we look at something like a family using YouTube to build a house, the concept that we can educate our population leveraging technology for less money with less control and with less requirement to be at a place is a pretty easy argument to make. And I won't go any further on it because I've talked about this so much in the past. Just another way of seeing the reality on the wall because if if you don't see this reality about the shifts coming in every industry, in every sector, you're going to get your ass beat over the next 10 to 15 years. It's going to happen. All right. So then – that takes you the other thing. Well, what do you do? You do something big. See, that's what sold me on this story. Somebody sent it to me. I looked at it. It's interesting. Maybe I'll run it Monday. Maybe I won't. I don't know. I'll think about it over the weekend. But when I listened to the video and I heard her at the end say, do something big, I'm like, that's what I'm always saying. Do something big. Challenge yourself. That doesn't mean go build a house. But what can you do? You know, years ago, I remember putting on a story about a guy That got uh, you know basically a motorcycle frame for almost nothing, did some painting on it all. But since it was a registered frame, he was able to get tags for it, and with a couple AGM batteries and some other things and some hacks, and I think it was in a Popular Mechanics magazine or some other magazine like that. He 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 built an electric motorcycle that had like 80 mile range or 40 mile 40 mile range, and did something like 60 miles an hour top speed. And he he lived like 10 minutes from where he worked. So he had an electric motorcycle he just plugged into his house and rode to work every day. And and my 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 immediate thought with that is well if you learn how to do that, there's all kinds of you know old bikes out there that aren't worth anything, you know, that aren't soft tail Harleys or some shit like that, or or bikes that people think are worth more money than there are. There's tons of stuff out there to be had for a few hundred bucks, and one could go into business building these bikes and and actually doing custom builds and stuff like that and, and selling them for less than, you know, because there's now, now there's all kinds of electric motorcycles available for sale and they're not that expensive. They're, they're really not. But you could still sell for less. There's still that opportunity. And you could market the concept of recycling and this is, you know, a bike that would be in a landfill. I mean, there's 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 a million things out there that if you learn to do any one of them really well... You can either change your life, like this family did. They're living in a house they could have never purchased. They could have never bought it. But they have it. And they know how every single bit of it works. And if something breaks, they know exactly how to fix it because they built it. Even if they never do anything with it from a a commercial standpoint, their life is better for having done something big. And mom wrote a book which is probably smarter than going out and building houses for other people because you sell a book to somebody in Sheboygan from Little Rock, and it doesn't matter because the book gets shipped by Amazon and you don't have to do anything. Brilliant. What's the big thing you're going to do with your life? I want you to think about it. Whatever age you are, that clock's been ticking. Your heart's been beating. You know, a lot of you out there, your heart has beaten a billion or even two billion times in your life. Two billion heartbeats, gone. You don't get them back. You might make four billion, you know, if you live a really long time, you don't have four billion heartbeats or more. But one, one and a half, two billion of them are gone. Have you done something big yet in your life? Are you going to? If so, what's it going to be? Because ba-boom, ba-boom, boom, boom, boom You know the clock ticks, tick-tock, tick-tock? There's a rhythm there. That rhythm is a very similar rhythm to the beating of the human heart. In fact, if your heart beat rate is 60 beats a minute, it's identical, right? Tick-tock, tick-tock, thump-thump, thump-thump, thump-thump. That's your clock. That's your time. It's being spent right now. What are you going to do with it? Because when it's gone, it's gone. And what we do and what we leave behind is the legacy we leave behind for our children and their children and their children's children. It's a good thought to go into a Friday with. With that, if you like this show and the work that I do, do consider joining the members support brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive benefits available only to members and you can help support the show for as little as 18.3 cents an episode. That's $50 a year. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and you'll see all the great discounts that you get. You have a membership product that pays for itself in military, law enforcement, peace corps, and first responders. All of you qualify for a discount. Just email me before, not after you join with TSPC in the subject. I'm sorry, TSPC uh, service discount in the subject line. And I will get back to you with that discount code just as soon as possible. Do that before, not after you join for me. Next up, consider doing your uh, shopping on Amazon.com. Through tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, you'll click a link and you'll end up on Amazon.com. It's that freaking simple. It's that easy. So you get over to Amazon.com, you do your shopping, you buy your stuff, and guess what? We get some. We get supported by your shopping. It's that easy. It's that simple. So check out tspaz.com whenever you're going to go to Amazon and check out our daily reviews. Today I have one for you called Better Than Bullion. I've talked about this a lot, so I figured I'd put it on the air. Better than bullion, chicken base, and it's organic chicken base. This stuff is great. It's really great flavored. Uh, they make a lot of other stuff, even seafood ones like fish base and clam base and lobster base, and those are really cool because it's a lot of work to make you know a good clam base if you don't live where you can get clams all the time, or a fish base or a freaking lobster base if you don't can't get you know lobster leavings. It's it's pretty expensive. So anyway, to uh, to, to, to use this stuff, you basically dissolve it in water. It's kind of like a paste. It tastes a hell of a lot better. Uh, than bullion cubes or something like that, and it's very shelf-conscious. So I, I did some math on it, and uh, this is something I call uh, your raw storage factor. What is your raw storage factor? And to me, your RSF, or raw storage factor, is how much space does something concentrated take up compared to what is it is represented when it's reconstituted? So each jar makes about 9.5 quarts of broth. Three jars under 20 bucks, which is what I have featured here for you, will make you 28.5 quarts of chicken stock. That's 114 cups, but it only takes up the space of 1.5 cups, you know, three 8-ounce packages in your pantry. That's a 76 to 1 return on space. So that's how I think when I'm looking at concentrated items, but I still want high quality. And get this, not only is it organic, one of the things they do to kind of make that nice color, they add turmeric to it. Well, some extra organic turmeric in your diet is never a bad idea. And you do with anything you do with chicken broth. Anytime you have a recipe that's called for chicken broth or chicken stock, you use this instead of those crappy cubes or, you know, actual broth and stock. And I love making stock. Right now I have a pot that's been simmering on the stove for about 14 hours. I'm about finally ready to call it and shut it off. It's got two, uh, deer bones, deer, deer leg bones in it. And uh, some other stuff, and I'm making a a deer stock. And Nothing you buy in a jar is is that good, but I can only make so much of that and make that so often. Convenience, speed, economy, space saving, all those things are great. Better than bullion is my choice for, for these bases. And again, the seafood stuff is really, really good too. Those of you concerned about salt, they do have low-sodium varieties, and I have a link in the review for that as well. So, again, tspaz.com to support this show whenever you shop on Amazon. Check out our daily reviews. And if you have an item you'd like to recommend that I check out for a daily item, please send it to me, com. Just make sure TSPC is in the subject line, and you give me a link and tell me about it, why you like it, and I'll check it out. I like using crowdsourcing to help the rest of this audience find the things that are best for them. With that time to get to our song of the day, song of the day today, I decided to keep going some old school country for you. I know that's not everybody. It is me. Um, I like all kinds of music, but there's music I don't like. And no matter how good a song is, if it's a type of song I don't like, it's music is subjective. That's why I try to give you a wide variety. I play rock, I play classic rock, I play some modern music, I play some really old stuff, and I play you know some really kind of old school country like Merle Haggard. This song was number one back in 1975. A lot of you in this audience weren't even born yet. I was little. I was three years old. So this is an old song. I don't remember when it came out, but I sure remember listening to it, uh, probably by the time I was four or five years old and I really liked it. And you know, most of you have heard the song before, even if you don't think you have. Big wheels rolling, big wheels rolling, moving on, right? It's about truck driving. And there was a lot of country music about truck driving back in this. It was a working man blue collar job, you know, that paid a decent wage. That most men could do and honestly women could do just as well, but it was dominated by men especially back then. But today this is still one of those jobs that people can just, you know, get a decent paying job doing honest work, moving trucks across the country. And that's a good thing. But you know what I'm going to say, all this automation. Well, here's what I wonder you know, there's a lot of songs about driving trucks. And they're not all from 1975. In the 80s, Alabama did Roll On. There's even modern music about, uh, you know, Roll On, 18-Wheelers. Alabama, 84, something like that. Um, and then there's there's more songs, you know, more recently written country songs about driving trucks. And I don't mean pickup trucks, I mean big rigs. It, it kind of fits. A lot of truckers are country music types, and it's a good audience to play to. Um, it is... Something that, you know, I could see a song coming out tomorrow that has something to do with, with you know, driving big rigs. In 20 years, or 30 years, when our grandkids are our age, and they have kids of their own, will, if they listen to these old songs, will it even make sense to them? Will they look at it the way we look at old, old, old music about cowboys, for instance, you know driving cattle in and cattle drives and stuff like that i mean there's guys that still earn their living with a rope it's it's out there but it's very unusual everything's been modernized most guys i know that have cattle operations uh at any kind of scale they use four wheelers to move their cattle around you know and they, they a cattle drive is from one paddock to the next it's not it's not from from Texas to Colorado anymore that that just does not happen anymore so when we listen to that music, it's, it's a bygone era. So my question for you, will songs like moving on, not too distant in the future, be of a bygone era? And does that mean you and I, in our own lives, will see a point where we are part of a bygone era? And does that mean a little bit more of what I said earlier? Do something big. You got a weekend ahead of you think about it, form a plan, hit the ground running, do something big. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Big wheels rolling, big wheels rolling, moving
0: on. Big wheels rolling, got to keep them going. Big wheels rolling, moving on. White line is the lifeline to a nation And men like Will and Sonny make it move Living like a gypsy, always on the go Doing what they best know how to do Jamming gears has got to be a fever Us men become addicted to the grind It takes a special breed to be a truck driving man And a steady hand to pull that load behind Big wheels rolling, big wheels rolling Music keeps them going, and Will and Sunny keep on moving on. A good hot cup of coffee is waiting up ahead, and the rhythm of the highway hums along. Jamming gears got to be a fever, cause men become addicted to the grind. It takes a special breed to be a truck driving man. In a steady hand, oh, that low big Big wheels rolling, big wheels rolling.